go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. In Exodus chapter 4, as we've made our way through uh, the first three chapters and then the first 17 verses of chapter 4, we have finished or made our way past the commissioning of Moses. And so now he turns his face to Egypt, the Lord having promised to be with him through this commissioning. And we continue to see how Christ is the scope of all of Scripture and so provides the light to every shadow and the substance to every type. This morning will be of no exception as actually will be of, uh, of greater uh, understanding to such things as though we approach a passage that may be obscure to us in its meaning, we will find that it is actually more uh, familiar to us than maybe at first glance. We also, this morning, will draw uh, greater relevance. It will be more relevant, <laughs> the idea of God's gracious commitment to the Lord or God's gracious commitment to Abraham to provide a people according to the flesh to fill a good land, and that this commitment was coupled with a stipulation of obedience to the command of circumcision. Yet this would not undermine the greater heavenly end where Abraham's descendants, true descendants, will populate a new heavens and new earth through his promised offspring. So follow along as I read for us Exodus 4, beginning in verse 18 through verse 26. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your, your son, your firstborn. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him again for help this morning. Oh, Lord, we truly come before you humbly this morning, asking for your help that we may discern rightly your word, that by your spirit, Lord, this word may be blessed to your people, that they may be uh, that they may grow in their faith in Christ. And so by this growth, 
May not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, if I were to tell you about a conversation I had where I told a friend that I'm going to make him an offer that he can't refuse, to which he responded, show me the money. So I said, you're going to need a bigger boat. Then he said, if you build it, he will come. So I asked him, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? And then he replied, you talking to me? That's when I knew, Houston, we have a problem. After all, uh, after all this, you might be right to conclude that what, we, what we've got here is a failure to communicate. He ended our conversation by saying, hasta la vista, baby. I don't think I'll be back. Well, it's likely that from this fictitious conversation, you recognized a few of these quotes. They are taken from what the American Film Institute considers to be the top 100 movie quotes. And you recognize them because you are familiar with the films and so attuned to the phrases. And it may be that our passage is somewhat obscure to us within the Exodus narrative, but what we will see is that much like these movie quotes that I used, the New Testament uses phrases and ideas that would be familiar to those acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. And so what we'll see this morning is that as we read our Old Testaments and then open, or we read our New Testaments with our Old Testaments open, we're going to find that we'll, there'll be phrases and ideas consistent to tip our minds and, and to show what the Lord intended would come about, though in type and shadow in the Old Testament that comes into full flower in the New. And certainly our passage is a great example of that this morning. And last week we answered the question, how does one give it to the Lord? And I said we attend to his instruction each Lord's Day to correct our ignorance, that we rely on his ability to accomplish all his holy will over our ineffectiveness, and that we proclaim his sufficiency over our inadequacy, altogether looking to Christ, who is the only qualified Savior. Well, as we consider this uh, idea, as we're still within this uh, last part or this final, after the final commissioning idea, that we will look at this passage under this theme, that it is our gracious God who displays his grace in redeeming rebellious man and who assures weary pilgrims that eternal life is found in Christ alone, the guarantee of which is our circumcised hearts. So we'll see that it is our gracious God who displays his grace in redeeming rebellious man and who assures weary pilgrims that eternal life is found in Christ alone, the guarantee of which is our circumcised hearts. And there's four headings this morning. We're going to look at two hearts, two servants, two sons, and two circumcisions. So there's two hearts, two servants, two sons, and two circumcisions. The first heading that we look under is two hearts. And we see that come uh, to us in verses 18 and verses 21. There's two hearts, but there is one gracious God. 
And so in verse 18, we read that Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go, that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt, and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Moses does Jethro honor by supplying him opportunity to object to his return to Egypt. Moses also gives to Jethro the lowest reason for his departure. He doesn't tell, or at least it's not recorded to us in Scripture, about his commissioning and his meeting with the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. He tells nothing of the power that's been entrusted to him to use in order to set the people of Israel free. He merely tells Jethro that he wants to go back to Egypt to see if his people, if his brethren, are still alive. Jethro's response is that he would go in peace. It's actually a benediction. It's a blessing bestowed upon Moses' journey and mission. The first heart that we come across here in our passage is the one of Jethro. And it's the one that's softened to the will of God. It's the one that hears the concern of Moses for his people and considers not his own needs, but the needs of his son-in-law. And ultimately, he's considering the will of God. And so Moses comes. We, we are not aware of, the, of other son-in-laws, and so we won't speculate as to whether or not they were, but we certainly know that Moses kept Jethro's sheep for him in place of his daughters who were keeping his sheep when we first come across Moses and Jethro's daughters. And Moses is saying, I'm no longer going to keep your sheep, Jethro. I want to go back to Egypt. And on top of that, I'm going to take your daughter and your grandchildren with me. You can imagine or you can certainly understand that Jethro might object to this idea. Not only is there a long journey ahead, but the help that Moses provided in shepherding Jethro's sheep, but also the departure of his daughter and his grandchildren, and that he may not see them again because he's going back to Egypt where the last time we met Moses, or Moses was in Egypt, his life was threatened. And so Moses is not going to uh, a safe vacation destination He's not going to a sandals resort. He's going back to the furnace of Egypt. And he tells Jethro, not of the high and lofty reason, but really it is a valid reason, but is the lowest re reason. And yet Jethro's response to Moses is that he would go in peace. What a gracious God we have that served Moses here whereby Jethro's response, he's, been, he's given a good word, a benediction, and a blessing upon his journey and mission. This is not the only heart in our passage. We also come across the heart of Pharaoh, or at least we're introduced to, we're, we're told, it's prophesied about what will come of Pharaoh's heart. In verse 21, it says, The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt... See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart 
so that he will not let the people go. What an interesting uh, prophecy the Lord gives to Moses. What an insight to what the future has. He's saying, Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go. And then he says, oh, by the way, he's not going to do it. And he's not going to do it. Why? Because I have ordained it to be so. That, it, that I have ordained your difficulty. I have ordained your resistance. I have ordained, ordained that you will go through this trial, that you will suffer before Pharaoh. And we will actually see Moses will suffer, at the very least emotionally, from the people of Israel, who when Moses returns, proclaims to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Moses says, okay. Things are going to happen. Those things happen. And then what does Pharaoh do? He doubles their workload, takes away the straw, requires things of them. And then they eventually come back to Moses and say, what is this that you have done? Moses has much suffering ahead of him, all ordained by God. He does this, though, to assure Moses that it will not be according to Moses' ability, but according to God's will and purpose that Moses will accomplish his task. That the ten plagues specifically, though the tenth plague, is a part of God's plan to harden Pharaoh's heart to the point where it will require the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son. And this here is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. While intended to make him a pronounced exponent of evil had also the further intention of pro prolonging the process of deliverance, thus creating room for the full, fullest display of miraculous power. This is said in so many words, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. As we come before this first uh, opportunity where we find this idea that the Lord will harden Pharaoh's heart. It is, a, it is a point of contention amongst those that consider themselves Christians. For there are those that, that say that man has been given uh, liberty of free will, that all his choices are free from any influence. And so they would look at a passage like this and say, uh, this is not related to anything uh, but Pharaoh and his decisions, and the Lord is only casting uh, some sort of uh, overshadow of that to his purposes behind that. And though we do not deny that Pharaoh will make his own decisions, he will make them according to his own fallen nature, he will not be coerced to do so by the Lord, so that the Lord is not the author of evil, yet the Lord, as the primary cause, will utilize a secondary cause of Pharaoh's heart, whereby the Lord will remove. He would not turn to the Lord and relent, but that he would turn more into a sin and be given over. And so it is proper to say, for the, it is proper for the Lord to say, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So that Moses is not going back to Egypt thinking it's Moses versus Pharaoh. If it would, if, if the Lord, it's possible that if the Lord had said, 
Pharaoh will harden his heart. It's possible that Moses might think, okay, I'm in for a battle. Me versus Pharaoh. We're gonna, I'm going to take him down. And yet the Lord here in showing Moses a better way is saying, no, no, Moses, it's me. It's I, the Lord. It's I am. It's Yahweh versus Pharaoh. And certainly in that, Moses can be assured that no purpose of God will be left undone. We can go to understand this better into Romans 9. So turn with me to Romans chapter 9. This is our first connection point as we look at the echoes of this and direct quotes of the Old Testament in the New. And so as we read our New Testament, we read it uh, with uh, our Old Testaments open. In Romans 9, it is possible that among other passages, Paul had ours in mind when he wrote this chapter. For we see in verses 1 through 4 the connection between Israel as a son and a connection to the fathers. It says that what was belonged to the Israelites, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons. And then further it says, whose are the fathers and from whom is Christ according to the flesh. But then in verses 5 through 10, there's also a demonstrate. God demonstrates or demonstrates God was working not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so we see in our passage where uh, God is telling Moses what will happen according to God's foreordained plan by the work of God's power, which we often appropriate as a mission of the divine Holy Spirit in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And then finally, we get to verse 11, where it tells us, For though the twins were not yet born and had, done, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Consider this before we get down to such verses as the next few verses, but that God begins a discourse on his unassailable sovereignty by showing first his unmerited favor upon Israel. He doesn't start with Pharaoh's heart and something that may, they may quickly understand in a Pharisaical way, but he starts with his unmerited favor upon Israel through Jacob. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Before he gets to Pharaoh and his ardent heart, he tells them, you need to know something that I chose you. You didn't cho choose me. It was by his choice. It's not by your works, but because of him who calls. Paul continues in the spirit here of what was revealed in Exodus. What shall we say then? There is no justice with God, is there? May it never be. His first objection is addressed. What of God's character? What about God being, is this make God unjust that he would choose one and hate another before any action of theirs? 
The answer is, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God is righteous in showing mercy to some while he hardens the hearts of others. When God shows mercy, it is not a person receiving a reward earned by one's own efforts, but God's sovereign free grace extended to persons who are morally incapable of any acceptable effort. There's something that must be clear in our passage this morning and certainly here in Romans 9 is that God owes mercy to none. So there is no injustice when mercy is not shown to some. It's shown to some and not shown to others. There's no injustice because God owes mercy to no one. Mercy is a divine prerogative. It rests on God's good pleasure. So we see in verse 18, or excuse me, in verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed through the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. This hardening, when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, he does not create fresh evil. He does not create the evil that hardens Pharaoh's heart, but gives Pharaoh over to his already evil desires as an act of judgment, resulting eventually in God's display of power in the destruction of Pharaoh's army. We read further on in verse 22, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glories upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. One of the things we need to see as we read about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is that we too would go the way of Pharaoh, if not the Lord acting upon our hearts. And we see the contrast between Jethro and Pharaoh. Jethro, the Lord acts upon his heart, softening Jethro's heart to Moses' request, ultimately to the Lord's ordained will for Moses. And so Jethro responds with go in peace. Uh, Moses is going to stand before Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, let my people go. So that may we go and worship the Lord. Pharaoh says, no. And eventually when Pharaoh lets them go, he doesn't let them go in peace. He actually lets them go in war. To which this uh, well-worn phrase rings true that the same heat which melts the wax until it be dissolved, when applied to the clay, tends only to harden it the more. It's the one gracious God here. It's, it's a wonder. It's the wonder of our gracious God who redeems rebellious man. 
as it's been said before by others, and I've repeated uh, from, from here, that it's not that he hated Esau. That's not the amazing part of that. It's that he loved Jacob. And so it is for us. We would be like Pharaoh, if not the Lord acting upon our heart. And so these two hearts demonstrate for us one gracious God who redeems rebellious man. And this plays into this idea that also we see uh, a comparison of two servants. There are two servants presented to us in our passage, yet these two servants lead to one assurance. The two servants that we have are Moses and Christ. In verses 19 and 20, we read in Exodus, back in Exodus 4, Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. Moses returns not with his former power, the former power that he had while he was a son of Pharaoh. He had, in some ways, the power of Pharaoh's scepter. He could wield it as he wanted. He went, when, he, when he was a son of Pharaoh, he walked around under the protection and under the power of Pharaoh, but he returns not under that scepter this time. He, turn, he returns with the lowly shepherd's staff, which has been transformed by the power of God into the staff of God. Here, the Lord assures Moses that by his power, Moses will be safe, or at least Moses will accomplish his purposes in the Lord. And so he should trust the Lord in all things. And he does so by providing to Moses this assurance that when he goes back, he can go back to Egypt knowing that according to the flesh, according to a, uh, the logic of men, he'll remain safe. Why? Because all, that, all those who sought his life were dead. We have no response to Moses when God tells him to go back to Egypt that but there are those that are seeking my life. We may imply here that this may have been something of a secret concern of Moses, something contained in Moses' heart that maybe weighed him down slightly in his obedience, for he worried about what about those that were seeking my life. I am a wanted criminal in Egypt. We know that God knows all things, but here we, it's before us that God knows all the temptations his people lie under and how to arm them against their secret fear. Moses' secret fear here was allayed by God in assuring him that those that were seeking his life are dead. But this divine assurance given to Moses does not end at Moses's assurance because it only sets the stage for the divine appearance of Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2.
Matthew chapter 2, we have the beginning, uh, the birth of Christ, the, the early life of Christ. We know that uh, there are the slaughter of the babies there in Bethlehem, two years and, uh, and younger. And they were warned in a dream to flee to Egypt. And then in verse 20, it says, get up. In verse 19, it says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Egypt, into the land of Israel, excuse me, for those who sought the child's life are dead. We may have read that over and over again in our Advent readings or in other times in your scripture readings, and it may not have dawned upon you that what is being alluded to here is Moses's return to Egypt for the redemption of Israel. But here that set the stage, certainly in the hearts and the minds of faithful Israelites and those that uh, are able to remember such things in the Old Testament scriptures to give praise to God that as he demonstrated his power and his redemption through Moses in the redemption of Israel, so he will do so with Christ. And so Christ continues to follow well-worn paths for him that by according to his uh, furtherance of human learning, he may come to know as the scripture says, his sufferings and subsequent glories. And so as it relates to these two servants, one of Moses and one of Christ, each relating to divine assurance to fulfill divine purpose, that it would not be according to Moses's power that he would accomplish such things, but that the Lord had already worked beforehand. And so comforting to Joseph and his comfort allayed to his adopted son, Jesus. So such Jesus may walk in faith knowing that the father was with him at all times. And these two servants are also uh, related to the next comparison of two sons in our passage where we read in verse 22 that then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And then we read about in verse 25 that Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. We have two sons, one Israel being the son of the Lord, and Moses' son, but each pointing to one Christ. We have two sons, yet one Christ. Here in verse 22, it's the first time that Israel is referred to as a son. And the idea is, is that this, the, this Israel's son is freed for the purpose of worship. Let my son go that he may serve me. The idea here is that, that, that Israel would be freed for a purpose. The Israelites had been serving Pharaoh. Now God told Pharaoh that the Israelites were going to serve him. Their liberation came not in being freed from having to work, 
but being freed from working for the wrong master. We are told here that Israel is to be considered as the Lord's son for the purpose of the first relational idea of the fatherhood of uh, Yahweh to Israel through adoption, but further through the greater revelation of Christ, the true and natural son of God. By natural, I mean uh, divinely, the divine understanding of eternal generation. In the Old Testament, we are told that the fatherhood describes the action of, of Yahweh only. He treats Israel as a father, a son. It does not describe God's nature as paternal love in its inwardness. Secondly, the idea is the Old Testament, limited in its range, being applied to Israel only, and that in a collective capacity, so that uh, the Lord isn't saying he's a father uh, to all Israelites irrespectively. He's saying he's, he's a father to Israel here uh, collectively, and that uh, this idea is, is that so that as it, we see it applied throughout Scripture, we may understand it to be related to a remnant and then ultimately found in a singular Israelite, namely Christ our Lord. Third, this understanding in the Old Testament of the fatherhood or love of God is placed by the side of other attributes, such as are not only different from, but some of them directly contrary to his love. Whereas in the teaching of Jesus, the fatherhood of love appears as the sole makeup of the divine character, all other attributes being derivable and actually derived from it. God is here nothing but love. And so when Christ comes and proclaims the love of God, he proclaims the love of God as it is inherent in him. This love of God here is alongside his redemptive act. And so it is uh, mediated in, uh, through this revelation. In Christ, we have God um, in the flesh. And so we have love itself in Christ. And this understanding of these two sons of Israel and the son of Moses, as we will see as it relates to the sons of Moses, is they're both required to be redeemed. One is here redeemed by the mighty hand of God to be brought up out of Egypt. The other one is to be redeemed under the Old Testament configuration there of the covenant through circumcision. So his redemption, though one of temporal life, is still a redemption from death. One, uh, both picturing uh, a physical death, picturing eternal Redemption from eternal death. And so it should come as no surprise that when we read in such places like, like Hosea 11, where it says, out of Egypt, I will call my son. And then we read in Matthew, we, we can go back to Matthew 2, if you'd like. And we see it played out again. That in Matthew chapter 2, when Christ first flees to Egypt... It says in uh, 2.15, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This is Hosea, the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called 
my son. This understanding we see through Isaiah back to Exodus chapter 4, that the Lord was picturing his ultimate and full redemption through Christ. So it is our gracious God who displays his grace in redeeming rebellious man and who assures weary pilgrims that eternal life is found in Christ alone. What assurance and comfort it is for us this morning to know that there, that eternal life is found in Christ alone, not according to our own deeds, not according to our own effort. But if we'd been brought down by the ways of the world, by the temptation of our flesh, whereby we hold on to such earthly things as earthly works. We may release them and cling back to Christ for our eternal salvation. Well, this is finally brings us to our final comparison. And as we move down through these comparison, we may come to what may be considered the most difficult one, these ones of two circumcisions. But as we will see, as we analyze or as we look at Exodus 4, 24 through 26, we'll see the connection between this circumcision of the flesh or Abraham's circumcision and the circumcision of the Holy Spirit. It says that, uh, as we've read before, that Zipporah circumcised her son. She throws it at Moses' feet and says, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. And then this, uh, and then the Lord relents. He leaves Moses alone. He's no longer threatening death upon Moses. And it says that she said these things, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. It would be um, appropriate to think about it in relation to the act of circumcision and the physical blood related to it, but I, it's related to the idea of circumcision as a whole. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 17, and let's get some context to uh, this idea of circumcision. We know in Genesis 15, the Lord had promised Abraham to make uh, him a great nation and to provide many offsprings. It's reiterated to him in verse 17, and the Abrahamic covenant grows in its, um, or at least expands in the revelation of it, beginning in verse 9. The Lord uh, says to Abraham, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you and every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations a servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from, from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. 
But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So we understand something about the circumcision aspect of the Abrahamic covenant that was a threat of being cut off for those who disobey that how were they to keep the Abrahamic covenant they would follow and be obedient to the command of circumcision the Lord graciously commits himself as we see between as a uh, smoking pot and a fiery furnace walking through the cut animals and so the Lord says such as these animals are cut uh, cut off or cut apart, so shall the Lord be if he doesn't fulfill his promises to Moses or to Abraham, which was to provide a people, a, a numerous people, to fill a land that he would give them, and ultimately a singular offspring by whom all nations would be blessed. The Lord promises to accomplish all that. Yet for Moses and the individual Abrahamite and eventually Israelite. It would be for them to keep the covenant through circumcision under the threat of being cut off. And so we have Moses now getting ready to go back to Egypt to present before the people of God the word of God as God's mouthpiece and walking in disobedience to the covenant upon which the Lord was working through to fulfill his promises. And so we see the extent of Moses' predicament. He was in a bad place. He was being disobedient. He was a breaker of the Abrahamic covenant, for he failed to circumcise his son. And so Zipporah, his wife, to save her husband's life, she had to acquire him anew by this act of bloodshed so that the threat to his life might be averted. Here again, we find Moses being saved at the hand of a woman. Many times over in Moses' life, he's saved at the hand of, the, of a woman and here by the hand of his wife. And she says this in a mat, uh, this uh, <laughs> this difficult to understand phrase you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me we may understand that in related in relation to the covenant of circumcision what she is saying is that you are a bridegroom of blood to me and she was speaking because of the circumcision because of the sign of circumcision that, that they need to be circumspect to God and so set apart for his purposes as his people through the sign of circumcision. And since Moses was not in compliance, he was disobedient to it, he was subject to the penalty which was being cut off. And in here, the penalty was death, was to be executed justly by God. And yet, Graciously, as the Lord acting in such a way that Zipporah can take action and save Moses' life. And so she's saying that Moses is a bridegroom of blood. She's saying, Moses, you're back with me. 
You're my bridegroom and husband all over again. Instead of taking you from me, God has given you back to me because of the blood of circumcision, my bridegroom of blood. Now we're talking a lot about circumcision and a lot about blood here in this section. This all relating to this sign of circumcision would be a sign and a seal of the Abrahamic covenant. The question before us this morning that as we turn from the Abrahamic covenant to the new covenant is what is the sign and seal of the new covenant? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. As we turn from Abraham's circumcision to the Holy Spirit's circumcision. Now, I will admit that our Pado baptist brothers and sisters will use this in the opposite way in which I'm going to use this this morning, and we uh, brotherly disagree here. But as we can see in Colossians 2, or as, 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 uh, as we can understand it in Colossians 2, beginning in verse 9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, speaking of Christ. And in him you have been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority. And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So now we're introduced to Christ as the head, Abraham as the head of his covenant, and we're introduced to circumcision, one of Abraham that is eventually going to be referenced as uh, or one of Abraham made with hands and one of Christ not made with hands, one in the flesh, the other one to do away with the flesh, which is the old nature, the cut off the old nature, as Paul uses that metaphorically here, is the circumcision of Christ. So what is the seal of the new covenant? It is the circumcision made without hands. The removal of the body of flesh. So Paul begins his discourse here, or he continues his discourse, but in this section, he begins first with the circumcision of uh, not made with hands, the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Why is that important? Because it says in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So we have the seal of the Holy Spirit now presenting himself in the seal of baptism. So those that are permitted into baptism come as those who have been evaluated as having had a circumcision made without hands. So that through faith in the working of God, they are joined with Christ in baptism and, and in his death and resurrection. 
we see the connection here in Colossians 2, 9 through 14 between the two circumcisions. The one of Abraham where we find there's deliverance so that uh, the Lord will continue to work through Moses. But here in the new covenant, the circumcision of the Holy Spirit or the circumcision of Christ where we are sealed in Christ and then having been sealed in Christ, we testify to that sealant by taking the sign of the covenant in baptism. And so we see that taking his, if we go back to Moses, he's taking his first steps back towards Egypt. Moses was fortified by the providence of God, equipped with, with and assured of the power of God, and directed and comforted by the word of God and brought within the embrace of the promise of God. And so as we look at all these comparisons in our passage, we see the fingerprints, the, the tracks. We see the fulfillment of the Old Testament so that our, our, our hearts and our ears would be attuned to the Old Testament scriptures as we read the New Testament. That we'd recognize God's word in God's word. And that we would see that it is our gracious God who displays his grace in redeeming rebellious man. And who assures weary pilgrims that eternal life is found in Christ alone. The guarantee of which is our circumcised hearts. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we give you praise this morning. We thank you that though your word may often be difficult to understand. The answers are found within your word. And so we give you praise this morning that you have given us the fullness of your revelation in Christ and canonized the words of Christ from beginning to end in our scriptures so that we may with joy go to them and read of our Savior and so know more of our redemption and understand greater the joy of our thanksgiving of lives that are turned to Christ in obedience. We thank you and we give you praise this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.